Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. I have the great honor of welcoming today Malka Simkovich, who is a professor, the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and Director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. She's an author of two books. A third book uh, will be coming out soon, please God. And she's also one of the great experts on Second Temple, the time of the Second Beit HaMikdash, Judaism, what was happening at that time, which also opens up all sorts of possibilities as well as and her works internationally on interreligious dialogue. So thank you so very much for joining me today, Dr. Simkovich. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I want to open up with the obvious question. Why are you at a Catholic university? How does that work, being a from person, and especially in your area of expertise on Judaism? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's a question that I ask myself all the time. Uh, but the boring and short answer is that this is the job that I got, and so it's the job that I took. When, we, uh, when my husband and I moved from Boston to Chicago, I was completing my PhD, and I did not think I would... Um, get any job, let alone a job in Chicago, it's very, very hard to find a tenure track position. And so when I was invited to give a talk at a group uh, called the Catholic Jewish Scholars Dialogue of Chicago, I gave a talk on my dissertation. And at the end of that talk, and this was uh, just over 10 years ago, a man in a collar, um, a, a Catholic priest came up to me and he said, I want you to have my job. This was Father John Polakowski, who had founded the uh, Catholic Jewish studies program at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago in 1968. He was retiring and I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I did not tell him I had no theological training or any exposure to interreligious dialogue whatsoever. I said, where do I sign up? <laughs> and have there been challenges of being the Jewish person on campus in a Catholic university? And with full disclosure, I have a graduate degree from Loyola University, so it's not that unusual. <laughs> it is a very big challenge. Uh, and depending on the day, it's either, it's well, I was going to say it's either an honor or it's exhausting, but the truth is it's always both of those things. I'm the only Jew on campus. Uh, we are a graduate school, so we offer master's and doctoral, uh, doctorate students to Catholics. We have a few Protestants and a few Muslim students Every five years, we get one Jewish student, and that's very, very exciting, and everybody wants to uh, celebrate that Jewish student, but really, it's just me, and um, uh, and I, I will just say, to the school's credit, they've invested a lot in nurturing a relationship, and this relationship is really very, very young. It was only in 1965 that the Catholic Church uh, began this process of reconciliation. So, I, so why do they have... A Jewish studies program in a Catholic university? Is it part of Nostra Aetate, part of that whole shift in the Catholic church? Yeah, well, the, the spectrum of what's going on in the Catholic church is very, very wide. And so I would put us on the far liberal end of the uh, Catholic church. I would say the majority of Catholic schools, all the way from elementary to a graduate programming, do not uh, invest this kind of uh, work and resources into this relationship. But yes, in 1965, the uh, Second Vatican Council published a statement retracting the accusation of deicide, of God murder against the Jewish people. And three years later, CT was founded with this program that was the first of its kind, and maybe at that time, the only of its kind. Now there are many such programs 
and they're primarily in Catholic spaces, but some in Protestant spaces. And it's very complicated. I'm not going to say it's all hearts and flowers and, you know, everything is solved. It's very tricky. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm aware of, of the Rubs writing and I'm aware of many of the discussions that are happening in my own Orthodox community about the complications of this dialogue. And let me shift away from dialogue for a moment because I'm fascinated by some of your research. Um, your area of expertise is the time of Second Beit HaMikdash, even though I, have, I gather that because of your role, you've developed areas of expertise well beyond. Judaism today is very different than it was at the times of the Second Beit HaMikdash. Um, if we were to go back in a time machine, what would be the most surprising thing that we would encounter? Ooh, oh my gosh, I wasn't prepared for this question. I thought you were going to focus on all the similarities to, you know, <laughs> highlight the continuity of the past 2000 years and you veered at the last second <laughs> and I have to think. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of things that would have shocked us in the ancient world. Um, but I guess the thing that comes to mind is the fact that you have Jews outside of the land of Israel in Egypt, where we always think, you know, there were no Jews in Egypt because look at Devarim, it says you can't go back. And so, you know, after Yitzhak Mitzrayim, it was empty of Jews. But the reality is there were up to a million Jews in Egypt by the first century. There were hundreds of thousands in Alexandria. I call that the Teaneck of the ancient world. Um, there was, you know, maybe even an analog to modern orthodoxy where these Jews kept Shabbat and Kashrut, some form of it. We don't know the details. Um, you know, of course, there's a, an oral tradition of halacha, but we don't have the literature from that time uh, to tell us more about the details. Uh, but uh, some of these Jews, and this is sort of the, the mind blowing piece of it, were not just going to show there were synagogues, at least by the first century in uh, all over Egypt, but there were at least two temples, two Batei Mikdash. And you might think, well, those must have been heretics, outsiders, marginalized Jews, but they didn't see themselves that way. They saw themselves as Jews who were very loyal and loyal to Yerushalayim and sent money to the temple, to the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim, but also had a temple, Beit HaMikdash, which is crazy to think about, um, in Egypt. So there was Mikdash Chonyo, and what was the other one? So there was one that was much older in uh, the Egyptian, um, in the Nile River, in the little island known as Elephantine. Yeah. And this is a yeah. very controversial question, because this is really, really early. We're talking 5th century BCE. And now there's all the scholarship coming out. You can't call them Jews. You can't even call them Judeans. Maybe they were Samaritans. Maybe they came from the land of Judea, but they weren't really part of the Judean community. Um, I tend to be more conservative with this. The papyri that have been found there, I think do cite um, verses that, again, it's like very hard because you're dealing with incomplete fragments and this requires some reconstruction. But the documents found at Elephantine, I think do cite the Torah. And um, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that this was a Judean community. It's much more clear with Beit Chonya. So Elephantine, if I remember, is around where the Aswan Dam is, is today. Yeah. And it was uh, much of it sub submerged. And Beit Chonyo is discussed in the Gemara as well, whether it was a Beit Avodazara, whether it was a place of, of pagan worship or not. When we look at the diaspora, so the diaspora was in Egypt and there was a diaspora in Babylonia also, wasn't there? Absolutely. There were Jews, I guess we would call them Judean, if we're talking about the 6th century BCE, the Judeans who were exiled from Judea, 
um, in the late 6th century BCE were told by the Persian King Cyrus, who had just defeated Babylonia, you can go back to what now they were calling Yehud, this Persian province. It was not Yehuda, it was, they called it Yehud, and they said, go back. And many of the Jews said, no, we're good. This is great here. We're going to establish communities. And of course, those communities become very important and very prominent in the early common era. But there are Jews elsewhere also. There are Jews across the Levant to the north of the land of Israel in what will become Antioch. There are Jews in Greek islands, in Rome, and even further into Europe, which was really the backwater of the Hellenistic world. I mean, if you would go to what is now Germany, you would have found very little what, what they would call, you know, culture. Well, that's that's not nice, but you have these Germanic tribes up in, you know, in today's England, uh, France, Germany, but there were Jews, there were Jews all over the Hellenistic world uh, by the end of the Second Temple period. And Jews were davening? Jews oh, were facing Yerushalayim? Jews were, what else, you know, what was yeah. happening with Jews? At the end? And, you know, towards the end of the period of the Second Beit HaMikdash, what were they? What were they like? Well, this is a big controversial question among scholars. I think that the trendy thing to say is, oh, you have to talk about Judaisms because there were so many different kinds of Jews and there were sectarian Jews and there were all kinds of different Jews. And so let's talk about Judaisms. I really oppose that view because I think that it elides, it eclipses the fact that there were many, many things that kept these Jews together. Now they were building synagogues by the end of the second temple period. And we know that from Roman sources, the first century BCE Roman historian Strabo says, wherever you go in the Roman empire, you'll find a synagogue. Now these synagogues, that's obviously a Greek word, a gathering place. These synagogues were not places where you would go and uh, recite a normative liturgy, not at that early stage. They were places where you would read the Torah and you would go to your synagogue and someone learned would read from the Torah. And then the, there's all kinds of Mishnahic discussions about you'd call up the Kohen and he would say a blessing and then he would read from the Torah. So we know that there were different kinds of traditions um, by the first century of how this worked. And then there would be a Dvar Torah. Somebody would get up and they would explicate what they had read. Now you do have prayer in the second temple period, but we don't have evidence that, you know, there's an Ashkenazi Nisach or, you know, some kind of normative uh, set of prayer the way that we have it today. You definitely have prayer. And what's interesting is that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find liturgical texts that actually do surface in rabbinic texts. So we just don't have all the information, but there does seem to be emerging, um, you know, what we would call, what would later become rabbinic liturgy. And in your, in your research, has there been anything that just shocked you when you discovered it? <laughs> oh, no, it's another question about surprises. Um, look, I guess, you know, we could always talk about the temples, we could talk about the fact that these synagogues are all over the Roman world. But I'm trying to think about what else I mean, I think what's interesting to me, is that many of the debates that we have today are the same exact debates that are taking place in the second century BCE. And so one good example is Zionism. Um, in the second century BCE, uh, there were what I'd like to call come home Jews. There were Jews who moved to the land of Israel and really, really wanted their brethren in the diaspora to come back with them. And there were debates about what the relationship should be between these Jews who lived outside the land of Israel and the Jews who are sort of running the show, running the Beit HaMikdash and administrating it. Um, and this question of how to relate to the land of Israel, um, it's a huge question. And it relates to the question of, is the exile over? 
or is it ongoing? And if it's ongoing, whose fault is that? So I just think that these conversations are very resonant and very contemporary. And just to talk about a little bit the time of the Beit HaMikdash. So one, one of the areas that you know a lot about is the letter, letter of Aristas, which is a report um, that was written from one person to his brother. In, in Greek, there's a number of different versions of it that describes also the Beit HaMikdash, even the Korban Pesach. Um, yeah, I, I, how many people came, for example, on Pesach to the to the to Yerushalayim? Is there an is there an estimate based on the historical sources? So this is a great question. I wouldn't use Aristeas as, as you know, like the firm primary evidence. It's a late second century BCE text that was probably produced in Alexandria, but we have some really good evidence from Josephus, the late first century CE historian, and we have archaeological evidence, and both of both literary and material evidence tells us the same thing. Probably hundreds of thousands of Jews were making the pilgrimages um, on, on Sukkot, Pesach, and maybe Shavuot as well. And one of the really interesting material evidence is that we have for this are the um, itinerant roads that lead to Yerushalayim. So if you, um, and this is very available. You can look up uh, the magazine BAR, the Biblical Archaeology Review, had a piece on this a few years ago. But some of the excavated roads that go to your shrine for, from all four directions are not big enough for these very um, impressive and large Roman chariots, but they are big enough for walking families. And scholars think that these roads were really meant for people who were walking, uh, itinerant pilgrims, who maybe weren't going to live in the city, but they were going to visit and bring sacrifices. Josephus confirms this, and he says specifically Pesach was a huge, um, a, sort of a huge site for visitors. And he talks about the horrible tragedies that happened in 69 and 70 CE, where Jews got stuck in Jerusalem in the Roman siege. And many of those were visitors who had come for Pesach to visit. Now, you mentioned that perhaps Shavuot. You were talking about the three regalim. You said perhaps, why is Shavuot uh, perhaps? Only That's only my speculation because we have a lot of late second temple literature on the prominence of Sukkot and Pesach. I'm not a scholar of how Shavuot develops. It is certainly one of the three Shalosh regalim that was recognized as very central, but I just don't know if it sort of had the same level of, um, and this is, this is again me speculating because we lack evidence, but I, I don't know of as many texts that discuss its centrality at, compared to Sukkot and Pesach. And how does all of that research and all of that knowledge inform the work you do on interreligious dialogue? Is it, it, does, is it helpful or is it just something else, another box? It started out, it's a great question. It started out as two separate things that were bifurcated. I was trained as someone who works in the second temple period. And then I was just thrown into this world of interreligious dialogue. And I guess I had to do it because I was hired at the Catholic school. But uh, when you are talking to people outside the Jewish community, um, it, it's so useful to know something about the first century because many of the people that I work with and especially my students, or, or I'll say exclusively my students have never met a Jew. And so they're contending with Judaism as it was in the first century. They've read the New Testament. They think about the first century a lot and they don't realize there might even be a difference between the Jew of the first century and the Jews today. So they're contending with this hermeneutical Jew in their mind and that Jew is informed by what they know from the New Testament. And so I can come in and say, um, 
A, you're wrong about what Jewish life was like in the first century. It wasn't hyper-legalistic and devoid of ethical content. And B, there are actual, actually some important differences between how I live my life as a practicing Jew and how other Jews live today and what life was like then and some important continuity as well. So it is very useful to have that knowledge and I bring it into the discourse. Now, does it get testy ever when uh, they put together that the Jews of today are the descendants of the Pharisees, of the Prushim, who are the bad guys in the New Testament? It absolutely does. And even well-meaning students often make assumptions uh, that go something like, well, yes, the Pharisees, as the Gospel of Mark says, they were... Um, not Mark, Matthew, they were snakes and hypocrites, but you're a good Jew <laughs> because you're not like the Pharisees. Um, and of course I have a big problem with that because I do consider myself a descendant of that tradition. Uh, we have Pope Francis who in many ways is a friend of the Jewish people and yet keeps using the term Pharisees in his homilies, not really talking about Jews, but often talking about bad Christians. So if he's speaking to a group of Catholics and saying, don't be like the Pharisees. He's not saying don't be like the Jews. He's saying don't be like other Christians who are not, you know, fill in the blank. So the language is very much still being used. I even had a Turkish student who I was having a conversation with him about his vacation. And I said, are you going back? And he said, I have to go back. I said, are you going back to Turkey for vacation? He said, I have to go back to help my parents. I said, wow, that's so incredible. You're going halfway across the world to help your parents. And he laughed and he said, I'm not a Pharisee. And I was like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? And he looked at me confused and I was confused. And I was like, could this possibly, what is happening right now? He actually comes from a Muslim tradition. And he said, why are you upset? And I said, you just said, I'm not a Pharisee. And he said, oh, in Turkish, that just means stingy, selfish, greedy, rude. And I said, what, do you, do you understand where that word comes from? And he's like, no, it's just a word. So I looked it up, turns out Pharisee in multiple languages is a neutral word, I guess. I mean, it's not neutral, but it's a word that people don't realize is connected to how first century Jews were perceived. And he had no idea. Well, we have the, another example of that is the phrase to be a good Samaritan. Exactly. Uh, which in the New Testament was actually the person who was the antithesis of the Pharisee. Right. Uh, and so if you call a Jew a good Samaritan, it gets kind of complicated on that as well. It and, is complicated. One of the other areas which I know you've dealt with is also looking back at the time of uh, the second Beit HaMikdash, the question of universalism, particularism, how much the Jews were to themselves, how much they were out there in the world, is things that, that inform today as well? Were the Jews out there? Yes, and there were so many varieties of what it meant to be a practicing Jew then just like there is now. And so I'm very firmly of the opinion that sometimes we problematically use these terms, universalism, particularism, um, as if there's a binary. And I don't think we need to accept that there's a tension between these categories. Certainly, I would say most observant Jews in the ancient world didn't feel like these were two opposite things pulling them in different directions. They simply felt you could embrace certain aspects of the Hellenistic world and continue to proudly observe Jewish tradition. And after I did all this work on Jewish universalism, I found all of this material in the writings of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who also makes this argument uh, and in many different ways. And I think part of the reason why we fall into this value judgment of particularism, like it's something to be ashamed about, is because these are words that are often used in Christian frameworks where there is a kind of negative attitude towards being insular or making boundaries around your community. The truth is, though, as an observant Jew, 
I don't think that it's problematic to make boundaries. Everyone does it. It's just a question of whether they admit it. And in the ancient world, there were Jews in Alexandria who said, you know what, we are uncomfortable with our particularism. So we are going to abandon observance of ritual law, but we'll still identify as Jews. We will keep in mind the meaning of Brit Milah, but we're not gonna actually observe Brit Milah. We'll keep in mind the symbolic meaning of kosher, but we're not gonna keep kosher. And Philo of Alexandria, who's a very important philosopher in the first century said, you can't do that. You have to observe. You can't just keep the meaning and you know, throw out the ritual to observe fully as a Jew. Um, means to keep that ritual as well. So there are debates just like today. Well, wouldn't that idea of meaning and not ritual relate to early Christianity, to Paul's reforms that he did? Absolutely. And that's why Philo becomes very popular. Well, Philo um, follows Alexandrian tradition of reading texts allegorically, which Christians then build upon to say, yes, the ritual it's either to be understood allegorically and the Jews totally misunderstood it, or the ritual was meant for the Jews to keep them in line, but now we no longer need that ritual, but it's inherently not good or it's inherently misunderstood. And so, yes, the early Christians, uh, especially those Alexandrian church fathers like Origen say, uh, yeah, the ritual is no longer relevant or necessary. So that opened up the possibility for, for Jews to be early Christians as well as to cross mm -hmm. that line? That's a great question. I think that Jews, even before the rise of Christianity, were doing this kind of mental work. Meaning we have evidence from first century BCE uh, and the first century. So before Christianity is really a religion that's separate from Judaism, we do have evidence that <clears throat> it's not that Paul develops these ideas and then it travels to more observant Jews, but I think Paul is borrowing ideas that are existent in Jewish circles. And so Paul knows that there are Jews saying, hey, you know what? We don't really have to keep these rituals as long as we have faith or as long as we understand the allegorical meaning. And Paul takes these ideas and he says, all right, well, now I'm going to apply this to my framework of, you know, how do I understand this individual that I think is Mashiach? And so Paul uses existent ideas and applies them to uh, those particular beliefs. So if we were to see a uh, second temple Jew and how would he look different than the non-Jew he may have lived next to? Was there a significant difference in clothing and garb and, be, and behavior? That's, a, a, again, these are excellent questions. And I just think it depends on where you were and also uh, what kind of Jew you're, you're encountering. My guess is that even observant Jews in Alexandria probably dressed like your average Alexandrian, the way that you and I live in America, and we wouldn't necessarily be distinguishable if you go into a supermarket. I mean, maybe your kippah would, but you know, generally not. Uh, but I can't answer your question as satisfactorily as I would like to. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were certain sectarian communities in the land of Israel who maybe were more visibly distinctive. Uh, but as far as we know, in a broad scheme, Jews did not have distinctive dress. Now that we have, you know, material about tzitzit, and we know that uh, there were rabbis who were tefillin um, all day. So those are questions um, that would have been specific to that early rabbinic community. But your your average first century Jew, my guess, even in Judea, is that they would have liked they would have looked like any other Roman. And you know, I, I know that doesn't sound very nice, but that's my guess. And though the typical, you know, early first century, second century Jew, 
we learn about the terminology of an Amaretz in, uh, in the Gemara, which has a different meaning than Amaretz nowadays as it's used. Uh, but were they literate? Were they educated? Or were they, was it just a mimetic tradition of some kind that they had? Also very controversial question. I think that two generations ago, scholars were more comfortable saying that the literacy rates of Jews in the late second temple and early common era were significantly higher than your average Greek or Roman. And now in this broader effort to try to maybe argue against the exceptionalism of Jewish life in the first century, there's more of a backlash and saying, well, no, the literacy rates were pretty much the same across the board. Um, and again, I guess I'm a little bit more of a traditionalist in this regard. For sure, the early rabbinic community and their followers, I think, uh, highlighted the importance of being literate and educated with the text. And then there's also um, a lot of ambivalence about the written text and the written text in translation and what that means for the meaning for outsiders, whether they're Christians or Jewish heretics who might then misinterpret the written text. And so there is this tension that you have between accessing the tradition by uh, learning orally from teachers or by um, you know engaging directly with the written word. But even that very tension suggests that most people, or at least many Jews in the land of Israel, had access to an education that would have enabled their literacy. And just the very fact that we have so many thousands of pages of Jewish text from the late Second Temple period, and not only from the land of Israel, but elsewhere, that tells me that literacy rates were very high. I mean, we have hundreds and hundreds, I would say thousands of pages of Jewish literature just from Alexandria. And of course, you could get a great education there. Part of this is financial. We don't know what the life was, what life was like for the Jewish poor that probably did not get to go to school. But we do know that there was a lot of Jewish wealthy. Yoshua Ben Gamla's pieces were still in the future. Right. To have changed things around. And in terms of those Jews, whether in Alexandria or in Bavel, their connection to the land of Israel was their com regular communication. Did they view the land of Israel as being the hub and they were being inspired by it? Or was it, uh, you, can have you, you can have your place, we have our place? Also a huge debate. I know this is a boring podcast because I, I keep saying, well, everybody <laughs> disagrees and it could be anything. Uh, but we do know that, I'll say a few things. One is there's no evidence for a mass migration from anywhere in what's called the Western diaspora to the land of Israel. In other words, there's no evidence that at any, in, within any decade or even a 50 year period, there's a massive wave. You know, like we talk about the second Aliyah, we talk about the Russian Jews going, um, you know, from the Pale of Settlement or, you know, fr from Russia to the United States in the late 19th century, early 20th century. We don't have evidence for that kind of mass migration uh, from let's say Alexandria or Antioch or Rome when they could have done so. I mean, and there were times where life was not so nice for the Jews in these places. And we don't see that ma mass migration. What we do have very good evidence for is financial donation. And so we know that the Beit HaMikdash and its administrators were financially dependent on um, diasporan financial support. And that means that they had to nurture, and I'm not being cynical about it. I think that the relationship was sincere and genuine but it was also a pragmatic relationship where they had to write letters to the Jewish community and say, you know, are you going to visit us? Uh, and, and obviously there's a subtext there of, are you going to send gold? And I'll just tell you one interesting little tidbit. I know we have to wrap up soon, but in 59 BCE, the Roman orator uh, uh, Cicero gave a speech 
at the Roman Senate, where he introduced a bill to advocate for the prohibition of sending gold from Jewish communities in Egypt, specifically Alexandria, to Jerusalem. And he argues it must have been the equivalent of billions of dollars were being sent to Jerusalem because he's saying this is money that should be sent to Rome, to the Temple of Jupiter. And all these very wealthy Jews are sending their funds you know, to the backwater of the Roman world and they should be supporting uh, they should be supporting Rome. And we also know that there were Jewish protesters in the audience who knew what he was going to say that day and came to protest his talk. And But in those times, the, the Romans didn't fully get it. If I remember in the letter of Aristias, also there's a question where they use the, the Zeus is just another name for God. So right. for him, I don't blame him, but I guess the Jews were, uh, were very charitable back then as well, but it kept at a distance. It's a uh, it's a different picture than we normally imagine at the time of the second Beit HaMikdash. And I, I guess it's also a challenge for all of us who are living in Chicago or elsewhere in the diaspora when we can get on a plane and we're opting out of it for various reasons. Absolutely. And there's more to talk about. Aristas is usually thought um, to be a Jewish text written, um, again, in the late second century BC. But of course, we don't know anything about who this person was or what he believed. And he seems very ensconced in an Alexandrian setting. Again, not someone, if he was Jewish, who would have made Aliyah, I suppose, if he was living today. Wow. It, I, as you noted, our time is wrapping up. I appreciate so much all of the insights you've provided. I uh, thank you very much. And it's also a, a pleasure to have you on this program. The two books you've written, one was The Making of Jewish Universalism from Exile to Alexandria, 2016, and the second, Discovering Temple Literature, the Scriptures and Stories that Shaped Early Judaism. And the new one will be about what? Thank you. Uh, it will be, I think, called Homeland and Diaspora in Jewish Antiquity. Very boring title, but hopefully an interesting book. I'm sure it will be. And thank you so very much for your time, Doctor, and I look forward to learning ever more. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you very much.